Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for all your blessings upon our lives. Thank you for the way that you guide us through each day, and especially for the guidance of your word. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would now lead and guide us in our study and uh, give us uh, encouragement and hope and perseverance uh, as we um, examine the revelation to John. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, last time, uh, which is a couple of weeks ago now, we studied the 13th chapter where we had uh, the two um, the uh, two dragon and the two beasts, the unholy trinity uh, of uh, the book of Revelation. And the two beasts, one um, uh, sort of west, uh, as, uh, as John was looking, uh, the um, it's like the political beast that has control over the uh, affairs of the nations. And then looking east uh, uh, from uh, Patmos, which uh, would be the direction of uh, Asia Minor, which was the, uh, in many ways in the Roman Empire, the center of the cult of the empire. So the emperor cult, the worship of the empire and of the emperor, um, the uh, beast, uh, the, if you like, the, the, uh, the uh, theological um, or spiritual uh, beast that uh, guide, misguides uh, the nations of the world. And they are waging war against uh, the uh, God's anointed. And uh, again, as as already the vision uh, that began in chapter 12 of the uh, the dragon's warfare against the woman and and uh, her offspring, uh, this warfare continues. And in many ways looks um, uh, looks uh, difficult, dangerous, and perhaps even hopeless uh, if you look at it from the perspective of what's going on uh, on Earth. And so this vision... <clears throat> We will return to the the, uh, the uh, beasts again. Remember the whole structure of the book of Revela- Revelation be circular and repetitive, so things uh, things are so shown in in repeated cycles, and in, at each each cycle something new is revealed. So we will return to the beasts uh, and and to the uh, uh, the dragon and the wrath uh, of the dragon and the beasts against uh, God's anointed. But now we are given once more, as we have done it before, as we have had before, we we are given. A respite from all of this as the uh, the true nature of the church's security is revealed in chapter 14 um now i'll give you i'll tell you straight away uh that there are there are so many uh old testament references and allusions in this chapter that if i gave them to you all you first of all you have to write them all down as you go along otherwise you wouldn't be able to keep up uh, and you would uh, soon be overwhelmed so i would recommend that you pick up a bible with cross references uh to trace them all out i will just say these i will just refer to them in very general and vague terms because they are uh, so very many this whole chapter in many ways much of the book of revelation but this whole chapter particularly is really built out of language and imagery that we find uh, throughout the Old Testament, and particularly in the prophets, and secondarily in the Psalms, in such a way that, um, as I said, um, it would take a long time for me to do full justice to it, or I'd have to give you a kind of piece of paper with, here are all the references, and if we looked them up, we would basically be delayed, you know, or detained uh, unreasonably uh, in the text. Uh, the, the the trees would take over from the wood. So what we're not going to do that. Um, if you have a Bible with cross references, you you can use that. Or if you go to a website like Bible Gateway or something like that, it, uh, again it will give you all the cross references uh, to the Old Testament for that. But that having been said, let's begin straight away uh, by reading 
I will just remind you that at the end of the previous uh, chapter, we had the number of the beast, which is inscribed on the head, the the foreheads and the and the hands of those who worshipped uh, worshipped the beast. In other words, all the idolaters. That's the last image we're left with, and then we have. Then I looked and behold, oh look! I looked and I saw. Um, so, it, which is John's way of saying something new now has appeared, a new vision, a, a new sight. Um, could we read the first five verses, please? Thank you. I will. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him a 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 140,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Thank you. So we, we return again to the 144,000 whom we last met in chapter 7 in that great vision of the throne room um, of uh, heaven. Uh, Tammy, you had your hand up earlier. No, that's okay. Sorry, I accidentally pressed the button. Okay, no problem. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. So 144,000, which you remember, there were, there were 144,000, which is 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel uh, <clears throat> in the presence of God and the Lamb, together with an uh, innumerable multitude from every tribe, nation, and language, and so on. Um, and now we have the 144,000 again. And here they stand for a representative, like the, the God's elect, God's chosen people. That is the church. So it's not the 144,000 as opposed to the uh, innumerable multitude, Israel and the Gentiles, but this is simply the short shorthand for God's chosen people. And of course, God's chosen people is not only the 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 uh, physical descendants of the uh, patriarchs, but the church is uh, is Israel. Israel and the church are one, and <clears throat> they are on Mount Zion. What is Mount Zion? It's one of the major mountains that God, that Jesus, went up. No, is there no? Not Jesus. It's the that's the heavenly. It, it's the heavenly place. Okay, so it it represents here the heavenly place. What is it physically? What is it? What is it literally? Is it where Jerusalem is built? It is Jerusalem. Yes. So yeah. Jerusalem uh, uh, is built on a couple of different uh, hills, which are called mountains uh, in the Old Testament, and uh, one of them is it is Zion. Uh, which is uh, uh, where the city of David is built, and and it it, it becomes it's off. Um, depending on kind of the, the reference is very little bit, uh, but the the mountain on which uh, Abraham uh, takes Isaac to be sacrificed, Mount Moriah, 
uh, is also uh, the it becomes the Temple Mount, um, on, on which the Temple of God is built, and that is often referred to as Mount Zion. So Mount Zion it becomes a Temple Mount, and Zion therefore becomes shorthand for Jerusalem. It becomes shorthand for uh, the uh, the place of God's presence on earth. Uh, because of the temple and it's often shorthand for god's people god's faithful people and uh, sometimes referred to as daughter of zion which is the people of jerusalem which is really the the, or the people of god so there it's a, it's a sort of um has very di uh significance of uh, symbolic uh significance in um in the old testament and in psalm 2 which is a really significant psalm uh, for the whole of the New Testament, it's the first of the royal psalms uh, in in the book of Psalms, and it's significant that uh, their first royal psalm is the second psalm, uh, the first psalm being uh, being a kind of introduction to the whole book of Psalms, um, uh, which speaks of the anointing of God's chosen one um, <clears throat> and um, God uh, speaks begins by uh, holding. Kind of in 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 uh, almost almost sort of kind of speaking almost with sort of um, um, scorn against about the those nations that set themselves against God and His anointed against against His King. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, "Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us." He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So the, the establishment of the kingdom of David, it's set on Zion. And so there is the combination, if you like, the, the, the um, fusion of the kingdom and the temple, the royal house and the temple, where God rules uh, through his chosen king, uh, who is David and his seed, uh, from the place where God himself is present in the temple, the place where he's worshipped, where uh, where the people draw near to God himself. And because of this fusion of the uh, the royal house and the temple in Zion, Zion becomes the place both of holiness and of divine power. And there are very many references in the Old Testament, which, as I said, you can look them up uh, yourself in the prophet's as well as in the Psalms, about salvation coming to the world from Zion, God dwelling on Zion, uh, God's people drawing near to Zion, and in due course also the nations of the world coming to Zion to worship the God of Israel. So Zion has this, has this uh, very profound significance as the place where, like God, God, place from which God himself rules the earth and to which he draws his people. Uh, which is uh, uh, which therefore also then becomes in the New Testament and 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 uh, briefly in Hebrews chapter ten, you know we have drawn you know we have not come to uh, you know the writer of the Hebrews draws the contrast between the people of Israel coming to Mount Sinai where the you know you had thunder and 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 clouds and, and the people trembled with fear and so we have not come to that mountain we have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. So we draw near. So uh, the Jesus is the seed of David. He is the son of David. And so the promises that are made in the uh, uh, so 
typologically, that is to say, if you like, the, the, the shadows of things, of realities to come in the Old Testament are Zion, David, the city of Jerusalem. These are fulfilled in the, in the reality, which is Jesus ruling from the right hand of God the Father Almighty, his heavenly kingdom. And so, hence we have this image here. I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And the Lamb, remember, is always the Lamb who was slain. That's short term for Lamb who was slain. The sacrificial victim who now holds the Lamb who is slain but who lives. The Lamb who is also the Lion of Judah. So the moment Jesus, every time Jesus is called the Lamb, we are, it's, it's, it's a, uh, our attention is drawn to the fact that Jesus is who he is because he gave himself as a victim. Sacrificial victim. Or as St. Augustine put it so so neatly in in, in one of these uh, very concise Latin phrases, um, a victor quia victima. He was a victor as the victim. Or because he was the victim, he was the victor. And there is the Lamb on Mount Zion, the place from which God rules the world, both with power and with holiness. And, and from where, and where the son of David will be, because he's anointed, God's anointed one, anointed one, Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek, his anointed one will overcome and destroy, and so bring to subjection the enemies of God and the enemies of his people. So just by stating that the Lamb is on Mount Zion, we already know how this battle and this warfare of the dragon and his beasts against God's people, how it's going to end. Because already the lamb is victorious. Because he has already died and risen and ascended. As he, his victory is already complete in himself. And he is the one who has gathered his people. And they have theirs this and there and and with him he has his hundred and forty four thousand the perfect uh, the 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 completion and the and the uh, fullness of the perfection of god's people all god's people twelve thousand from the twelve tribes and contrasting them with those who worship the beast and uh, 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 worship the dragon and his beasts who had be marked with the number of the beast they have been they haven't been marked with the symbolic number of anything any creature of any being but rather they had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads and this is the seal that we heard about already in uh, much earlier in chapter 5 and in chapter 7 you know the, those who have been marked with the seal what is the seal it is the name of jesus it is the name of god and this, dear friends, is yet another baptismal reference in the New Testament. We have been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so this is the this is the name by which we will be saved. We've been marked by God with his own name, sealed. So in this one verse, we already have okay, the game's already over, and we won, or rather. Jesus won and we are sharing his victory because we are with him because he has placed his name on us and marked us as his own. Now that's not the end of the story but it is as in there's more to tell 
but it is all at the same time, it is how the story will end. Now, uh, more uh, Old Testament references, or kind of allusions here. I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder, which we've already, again, we've had this before as well, uh, beginning in chapter one when Jesus first spoke. It's how it sounded. But there was this voice, like many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. Are we back in Sinai? I thought we were on Zion. No. Why? Because the voice I heard was the sound of, well, the ESV says, harpists playing on their harps. The Greek's wonderful. It's the sound of harpists harping on their harps. It's the triple harp there, um, which is a rather, I think, quite a nice way of putting it there. Harpists harping on their harps. Um, Tell me about the playing of harps and the Old Testament and their spiritual significance and use of the word spiritual advisedly. Any Bible stories come to mind? Old Testament narratives. Well, David playing the harp. Right, David playing the harp. To what effect? Well, he played the harp in order to calm Saul's spirit. Yes, because, because what was wrong with Saul's spirit? One more detail missing. Uh, it was troubled and wanted to destroy David. Yes, so he was troubled, but there's a there's a reason he was troubled. Can can you remember the specific detail? After David, after God had rejected Saul, what did he do? Well, he raped someone, didn't he? No, that's a different story. Oh, spiritually, he was given an evil spirit. To trouble, so he was troubled by an evil spirit sent from from God. But when David played the harp, he was um, he was comforted by that. So the playing of the harp, and there's, and he wasn't just any old harp; it was David playing the harp, God's anointed. And so these things come together. So this the sound of harp is harping on their harps. Harp is playing their harps. This uh, so many of them they sounded like thunder, and like the sound of the sea. But this is not an over. This is not a frightening or overwhelming thing. This is actually the instrument that was given to God's anointed in order to cast away the evil spirit, and to and to bring peace to those tormented by evil spirit. So, so it is it is um, it is the instrument, if you like, uh, by which God's Holy Spirit br- uh, brought peace to a troubled troubled a man. And so there's this again the this sound. It's not being played uh, by Jesus. It's being played by uh, the uh, um, being played by this 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 heavenly gathering, and it is a source of peace. It is a source again. It is a sound of victory. So we have, for example, in Psalm sixty-eight, which is a great victory psalm, uh, which is quoted in Ephesians four by Paul. Uh, it talks about you know the victory, uh, God's victory in the victory of Israel, and 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 again, there's a there, a description of the procession. And yet, the first uh, front, you've got the women with their tambourines, and then those, and the, you've got singers at the front, and and you've got uh, the musicians and the harpers. You know, you've got this a procession, a vic- victory procession that involves dancing and singing and tambourines and harps. And Paul in Ephesians four uses that uh, a quote from that psalm uh, specifically to refer to the preaching of the gospel. You know about how he gave gifts to men 
And then he goes on to talk about these gifts be coming through the apostles, the evangelists, the prophets, the pastors and teachers to equip the people of God. And so th there, there again, we have so so this sound is what what John sees is the church on this mountain of God's triumph and of God of God's power. And this song of victory or this 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 or this orchestra and choir of victory. That uh, that proclaims both God's uh, the victory of God in against his enemies and the victory, therefore, of God's people. So God's victory in against enemies is always God's victory over the enemies of God's people. Um and and uh, which which casts away evil spirits and brings about peace and calm. Um as uh, um and they were singing this new song. Again, this is a reference to uh, Psalm, you know, Psalms, you know, sing to the Lord a new song, which is not uh, a biblical argument say we should have constantly, you know, throw away the old song, uh, old hymns and let's write new songs. That's not the point. It's a new song, which is a song that is being given only to the 144,000 who be redeemed from the earth. I, it is a song that only the church can sing. So it's new because it's it's a new testament song it's not new as in 2023 or rather than 2021 but it's new as a song that could not have been sung until the victory of the lamb it's a resurrection song and we already have them in the new testament uh, a few of the early hymns of the early church and you know rise o sleeper and awake from death if you know this baptismal hymn in ephesians for example and we have several of these new songs uh, in uh, in the book of Revelation um, as well, <laughs> um, and the and the um, the new song that we have quoted in chapter seven. Uh, uh, for example, we have oh the, the uh, we have a song about or oh, it's not really a song, but the this kind of poetic uh, description of the the victory of of those who have um, come out of the great. Uh, tribulation and then we have a song in in revelation 11 uh and um and, and we will have more and more songs as we go through this book still all of which declare the victory of the lamb and that's what the gospel is you know we know the gospel means good news but this is, as I've said before, it's a technical term in, in Greek literature, and so Greek use of the of the first and previous centuries as well, of the good news specifically of a battle one or war one. It's not just generally kind of oh good news is not going to rain tomorrow. It's the, the the proclamation. And this is why also preachers the the word for those used for preacher preaching and preachers in the New Testament is frequently the word for herald and the message of a herald and herald of course again is it's a it's a it's a military role or or a, or a political role you're somebody who goes and declares uh official news so the you know how beautiful are the feet of him who uh who brings glad tidings is is that that um is that the the, the preachers of the gospel are heralds of christ's victory that's what the gospel ultimately is I mean, this I sometimes get into so trouble with, with uh, my colleagues when I say you know, <laughs> um, when I say that you know the the forgiveness of sins is not the ultimate goal of the gospel. 
we always, you know, forgiveness of sins is, is something that we as Lutherans rightly put right at the heart of the gospel. But it's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is the ultimate victory. You know, it's it's the it's the necessary fundamental fact of the gospel is that our sins are forgiven. But because our sins are forgiven, then that leads to the ultimate goal, which is that we enter into sharing into the final victory, you know, feast of the victory of Christ. We we enter paradise. Jesus defeats the say is the dragon who who managed to ex- get us expelled from paradise, and the ultimate victory is that we are brought back into God's paradise, for which our, the forgiveness of sins is foundational and fundamental, and and never goes away. In this life, as being a foundational and fundamental, but it's not the be all and end all. It's the is the portal through which we enter. That is the victory. It's the bringing of victory. But we we win win the victory in order that we may enjoy the peace. That is won by the victory. So the battle, you know, is 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 wrought over sin in order to bring about the peace and 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 the enjoyment of the peace. And it is our privilege as baptized members, those who've got the name of God on our foreheads, you know, who've been baptized into Christ. And this, by the way, is uh, you know, if, if you want to ever get into a scrap with people who insist on baptism by immersion, if you're not fully immersed, you're not properly baptized, which is a very fine way of baptizing a Luther, for example, very much in favor of it as, as being the kind of normal form of baptizing. And if you look at sort of medieval fonts, they're often very large and they're big enough to to uh, dunk a baby improperly. Um, but many, often in the early church, uh, baptism was not carried out by full immersion. It was carried out by uh, pouring uh, water on the head. And the kind of part of the symbolism is that you pour the water on the head because that is the placing of God's name. On the foreheads. So when you see a you know, baby being baptized and the water is poured on the baby's forehead, this is one of the reasons. This passage is one of the places that is, is being kind of recalled. Hopefully that will help you see baptisms differently next time if you haven't thought it before. You know, name is on the forehead. We belong to him. And they have been redeemed from the earth. This is not referring simply to, this is not referring to the church triumphant this is not referring to the saints in heaven who've escaped from the earth this is referring the 144,000 always are referred to the what theologians call the church militant still in in the battle but we already we are already the redeemed though we are on earth we are redeemed from the earth as jesus is in you you know you're in the world but you're not of the world um and they are, and the description here is both kind of priestly and military. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. And again, there is there's a stack of Old Testament references here. But first of all, this they are uh, they are not defiling themselves with women, for they are virgins. This is not a reference to monastic orders and 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 vows of chastity or any of those things. But rather, it's drawing. And first of all, the word virgin in in Greek, the Greek word virgin, uh, unusually the you you can ha- it's whether you are referring to men or to women is exactly the same word. Usually feminine words have a feminine ending, 
and masculine words have a masculine ending. The word virgin is both masculine, uh, the masculine and the feminine have the same ending. And you can only tell which it is by the um, uh, uh, the article, definite article before it, if it is used. Uh, <clears throat> uh, but here there is no article. So it's a kind of... Uh, it's, it's it could be a, it, it's it's not a it's not a gender specific reference but of course it talks about women what is it talking what is this reference to virginity and uh and not defiling yourself with women it's not a, again it's not a statement against marriage and marital relations but rather what is a reference to is something that is is very very common um imagery already amongst the old testament prophets and also picked up very strongly in the revelation of john which is the um uh the uh imagery of uh faithfulness marital faithfulness corresponding to spiritual faithfulness to god and adultery and and unchastity being uh images that are used for idolatry and unfaithfulness to god so this is the reference of the ones and and again we have for example in in um uh, uh, uh the prophet jeremiah we have uh uh, one of the prophecies in Jeremiah where he refers to, you know, where God speaks of Israel uh, as, you know, God finding Israel as this sort of uh, abandoned child, a baby wallowing his own blood and how God took her and nurtured her and 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 raised her up and in order to uh, to marry her. And then she went off and was adulterous and unfaithful. So there's this kind of imagery and, and, and this this vision here kind of combines those uh, that imagery with the church and these hundred forty-four thousand saints, but because they are referred to as not uh, uh, as not defining themselves with women, which is a kind of military idea, and you you have uh, not just in the uh, in the uh, old, but you you also find it across many uh, very many uh, uh, cultures, ancient and modern, where in, in a, for example, in in on the eve of a battle. Um, or in or 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 elite troops, you know, they 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 keep themselves from from women, even if they're married, because they're dedicating their whole focus now on the on the task at hand. And this probably has is is also behind Paul's teaching in First Corinthians seven, where he's kind of he he is encouraging as many as been given the gift in in Corinth not to marry, because the moment you marry, then your your if you like your your attention is divided between your your spouse. And God and those who are unmarried can dedicate and devote themselves entirely to God. Now, Paul gives that as his kind of his opinion, because he's expecting in expectation of of uh, approaching tribulation, uh, which came in his lifetime and in which Paul himself perished. You know, but uh, the, the, it's probably the same kind of image where Paul says, "Look, you know, he doesn't carry a wife around, you know, unlike the other apostles, and therefore he's able to dedicate himself more wholeheartedly to the work of God." And that same kind of Mental picture is also given here, uh, referring to the whole uh, whole church as not having defiled itself, um, but keeping you know, the church is is keeping itself for is exclusively for God, uh, without any any defilement. They follow the Lamb wherever uh, He goes. <clears throat> um, and that again, there's this. You know, what is that? What what could that be referring to? Well, it could be. It's first of all, this is against the military image, 
you know that this is the kind of these are these are the hosts uh, like when 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 god led israel out of egypt uh in exodus they're referred to as the hosts of israel the whole nation is referred to the hosts of israel which means the armies of israel the troops of israel and so this is like the, the troops of the lamb and they follow him wherever he goes Jesus says, unless you follow me, you know, if you want to follow me, take up your, you know, you have to take up your cross and follow me if you want to be saved. And and this, you know, you, you follow him into his victory, but you also follow him into suffering if need be. You follow him into his suffering, into his death, as well as into his resurrection. So there's this sort of um uh but but again, if you go back to that image from Jeremiah, you know, that 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 sort of um abandoned, hopeless, helpless infant that which god raised and and followed uh you know followed god until she became unfaithful well these ones are faithful they follow him wherever he goes and they are been dedicated to him and they be redeemed from mankind as first fruits for god um this uh this word first fruits which it can also mean the firstborn kind of the first the first first from whatever first of the from the womb first from the harvest what is what's the re significance of the first fruits or the firstborn in the uh, old testament kind of um spiritual world it was uh, dedicated to god the first fruits belong to god whether it's of the harvest or of those who open the womb they are always dedicated they belong to god and then whatever follows from that then is 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 shared god shared you know you know for example the the farmer gives the first fruits the first tithes the first fruits to god and then gets to keep the rest so it's that thing which is holy to the lord so to be first fruits for god is to be his god has taken from mankind if you like from the earth he has taken this the first fruits now jesus is called also the first fruits he's first fruits from the dead He's the first of mankind to rise from the uh, dead. And so, so to call 144,000 the first fruits um, for God and the Lamb, again, is um, is implying or is alluding to the promise of the resurrection. Um, and, you know, just as Christ, the first fruits from the dead, was the first, you know, he, uh, we, we, those who follow him will likewise become the first fruits. Yes, Tammy. Could it be that the first fruits um, also means within the context of this particular chapter, because later on it's going to talk about the harvest that comes on earth, that these are the first fruits from that harvest at the end? Uh, absolutely. That Yes, that's, that's exactly where we're going with this as well. So there's this, you know, the idea of the harvest. I mean, as I said, the, the term can also refer to the firstborn, um, which has links to christ both as the first not only firstborn from the dead but also firstborn of his mother but also that links us back to adam you know the first uh a first man so we are you know the firstborn which also therefore means um uh that the one who inherits the estate so inherit is uh with christ but you're absolutely right there is now the the, the kind of the first fruits it is translated as first fruits here because uh almost certainly because of what's about to come uh which is that uh, the the harvest of the nations and again from the harvest of the nations, you know the first fruits belongs to god 
and so this the the uh, that that they belong to God uh, specifically and are holy to Him is uh, part of the hope of of the church. You're absolutely right. Yes. Um, <clears throat> moreover, we are told of them that uh, in their mouth no lie was found and um that's a, a clear reference to you know this is uh, from um to zephaniah uh the prophet zephaniah in chapter three has has a um first of a a prophecy of the judgment of jerusalem and the nations and then a prophecy of the conversion of the nations and how the peoples and it's it's all to do with speech so if i just read to you from chapter three verse 9 onwards for at that time i will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech which uh probably is a reference to babel as well that all of them may call upon the name of the lord and serve him with one accord and again think of pentecost from beyond the rivers of cush my worship as the daughter of my dispensed dispersed ones shall bring my offering on that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me for then i will remove from from your midst your proudly exalted ones you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain holy mountain hear that but i will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly they shall seek refuge in the name of the lord those who are left in israel they shall do no injustice and speak no lies nor shall be shall be there found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. So the nations will be converted, the people will be purified, and they will no longer speak deceitfully. They will speak no more lies, but only the truth. And because, of course, Satan is the father of lies, they shall be God's people, and they shall speak like God, and they shall all speak together, and they will not no longer be afraid of any enemies. So just by making that brief reference, John is recalling to mind that particular prophecy so that we might remember what is this whole thing about? This is about the converting them, that God will gather from the nations the people for himself and they'll all speak the truth with one accord, with one voice. And again, this will be, uh, this will be referred to later on, a little bit later on. And for they are blameless. Blameless. Now, this word blameless, again, uh, Again, we could do a whole Bible study from this point. We just stop and say, okay, let's do a Bible study on the word blameless. Because this word blameless, first of all, again, in the Old Testament, blamelessness was a, a necessary requirement for a sacrificial animal. To be uh, acceptable as a sacrificial animal, it had to be blameless. And to be to so that, that it might be found to be blameless, one of the tasks of the priest was to look for blame, was to look for defects. And only those that in which no defect was found was acceptable. And so to call someone blameless. Now, what makes the church of God blameless? Well, we've already told, we were already told this in chapter 7. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And we've already been told that they are 140,000. They are gods because they have the name of God placed on them. They're baptized. And Paul in Ephesians 5, for example, speaks of the love of Christ for the church, where you know, Christ has um, you know, made them, uh, uh, sanctified them with a washing of water with the word, so that he might beautify the church without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In other words, to remove all blame or remove all defects. 
And so this blamelessness is not a description of the moral excellence of Christians who do not, you know, we do not get rid of our sins in this lifetime, our sinfulness in this lifetime, but rather we are blameless. We have been made, we are made, we have been made, uh, we have been, we have been um, made such that no defect can be found in us. Because again, because of the forgiveness of our sins. And remember the, the, the word forgiveness, um, which is sometimes used to be translated as, as the remission of sins. Uh, that, that doesn't simply mean God saying, you know, um, it's okay. I don't, I don't hold you. You know, I, I won't hold it against you anymore. It means for taking away, putting away of sin. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so if your sins are taken away, you're blameless. Again, we will return to that. So that's the, that's the kind of, this is the assurance of the church. However much the unholy trinity of Satan and his beasts rage against the church and seem to be victorious, whether through uh, political and societal uh, means or through the deception of false teachings and false religions and false worship. Christ is already victorious and we already have victory in him and we share in his victory. And however much your conscience accuses you or the world blames you or Satan accuses you, you are blameless. And what is that? What what brings about the blamelessness? Because we have the truth in our mouths, the confession of the God of the word of God. That is the truth. God is the author of truth. Satan is the author of lies. We are no longer his. We are God's. And therefore, in our mouths, what is to be found in our mouths is the word of God, which does not lie. So again, this is not a description of our of our innate excellence, but rather what we have been made by the work of Christ, by the Lamb. And then uh, we uh, we have angels now are sent out angel meaning messenger and it's called another first of all we have another angel i one one that we haven't met yet we've had various angels have have appeared so far um doing 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 all kinds of work but now comes another angel and we have a, a interesting uh, translation point here esv translates it flying directly overhead uh, which is uncharacteristically imaginative. It literally means in midair or mid heaven, and it's called mid heaven or mid air because, again, in this kind of in 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 the kind of cosmology of the antiquity, you have you have the earth, you have the middle heavens, which is the visible the thing the bits we see where the sun and the moon and the stars are, and then you've got the heaven heaven of heavens, uh, which is the dwelling place of God. So the the mid uh, the the mid air or the mid heavens is the sky above, which is why it's just why the ESV translates it directly overhead. So the idea really is the zenith. That's where the sun is, you know, kind of the the the, the highest point. So and and the point is that this is it's it the the angels flying in the middle in in the zenith in 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 the in the, in mid heaven or mid sky, um, eye visible to everyone. And he has an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation, tribe, and language, and people. So this is the sending out of this eternal, of the eternal gospel, the uh, the good news 
which remember is a proclamation of Christ's victory. Ultim is the ultimate what is ultimately meant by the gospel. And we even get to hear what and, and he's for all. You know, go Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. And so it's, it is for every tribe, nation, tribe, and language and people. And again, is the, we have the kind of, and that reference to language, and we have that 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 kind of a combination of description, nation, tribe, language, and people. We have that repeatedly. We should always think of Pentecost at that point. It's not just to all peoples, but you know, this is unlike like in Islam, where you know the Quran has to always be learned and 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 um, and passed on in Arabic. God only speaks and speaks to us in Arabic, and you cannot translate the Quran. You can every other language is an interpretation, whereas the gospel is sent to every tribe, people, nation, uh, uh, language, and people, nation, tribe, language, and people, so that God speaks to all of us in our own lang our own tongue. And he and and this is what he said: Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. First of all, let's go, if you look backwards, heaven and earth, sea and springs of water. Put those together, what do you end up with? The whole universe. All creation. So if you look at Genesis 1, Basically, all the the you know in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth, um, things above and things down here, and things down here consist of water and land. And then you got heaven, which really is, um, you know, again means the sky, space, the stuff above. So all creation, God is the creator of all things. Remember when uh, Jonah was on his ship, and God. Uh, cast a great storm against the ship and eventually uh, the, the sailors interrogate Jonah and he says well I worship God who, who made heaven and earth and I'm, on, and I'm running away from him um, and even the pagan soldiers, uh, uh, sailors realised that this, is, this was probably not the brightest plan, the, the best plan that Jonah ever had um, <clears throat> fear God and give him glory what does it mean to fear God? And what does it not mean? I mean, if, if I say fear God, what do, what do you think it doesn't mean and what do you think it does mean? Well, people all say you fear God if you do something wrong. I'm asking you what you think. Well, that is, well, the way to think, isn't it? Well, what does it, yeah, but what does that mean? Use another word than fear. So what's well, it mean to fear God in that sense? You're doing things wrong. But what, what does it mean to fear? To be aware of what you're doing. A well, fear we're not to be fright frightened of God. To be frightened of God. Yeah. Yeah. So it could mean that. So that and that's how it's often put. You know, if we say if I say to you, so I'm gonna put the fear of God into you, mm -hmm. uh, that's not that's not good news. No. But this angel had an internal gospel to proclaim. And the gospel, is it good news to say you need to be frightened of God? That's, not, that's hardly good news, is it? 
Tommy. Well, isn't it like feeling awe? This is the creator of the universe. And the follow-up to the fear is glory. Give him his glory, what he's due, what he's, we should be showing this awe and respect, which is um, historically speaking, what you would consider to be fear, like in the, in the context or uh, meaning of awe. Um, absolutely right. Yeah. So the, it's not the idea is not the, the key idea is not be scared. So, for example, if I just give you a, a sideways example, when it, when if you read Ephesians five um, about husbands and wives, one of the things he says, you know, uh, at the very end of the chapter, Paul says, um, you know, I'm, I'm saying this, I'm saying that this is referring to Christ in the church. But that husbands love their wives and wives make sure they respect their husbands the word that is translated almost universally as respect is actually the word fear and we know from context that paul doesn't mean that wives should be afraid of their husbands or scared of their husbands because husbands love their wives so it's this idea of the the this recognizing uh in 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 here so fear god you recognize who god is and who you are in relation to him and you have the appropriate uh Respect doesn't do do it justice, but it's a kind of um, uh, respect and awe and um, deference to God as God, that you know who God is, the creator of all things. You know, if you come into the presence, you know, it's a kind of it's it's an ancient trope you find in fairy tales, you find in 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 comedy programs, you find in all all kinds of genres is that, you know, somebody really significant is disguised as somebody insignificant. The pauper, you know, the the prince, you know, prince who disguised himself as a pauper or or the hotel inspector who comes and is is uh, isn't actually doesn't look like an inspector, whatever it is, you know, whether it's Walter Towers or or Brothers Grimm or whatever. and then you suddenly realize who they are and everything changes you know you the, the princess pre- kisses the frog and 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 there's this prince and all of a sudden you recognize who this is and you adjust your attitudes so, well the good news is well the gospel eternal gospel is begins with a call to repentance this is what in the lutheran confession would be called the gospel uh, where the bible uses the gospel in the broader sense to include both the call to repentance and the call to faith. Um, give him glory. Acknowledge God as God. This is the first table of the law. We should fear love, you know, we should uh, love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because God is God. Because the hour of his judgment has come. And when his judgment comes, then there is, you know, you can no longer ignore him. You can no longer substitute him for some, something or someone else. Um, and you can no longer treat him with indifference. Fear God and give him glory now. Because the judgment is coming. And this is good news, first of all, in the same way that um, um, that in, uh, say, Amazing Grace. We've got that. <laughs> if you if you sing Amazing Grace from a Lutheran service book, you'll find the second verse is missing. 
and there isn't even a footnote to say some manuscripts have a second verse. <laughs> it's it's been taken out as being theologically unsound by out of the Lutheran service book because it has the phrase, it was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. And it didn't pass muster uh, at some point in, in Lutheran history because the way that in our tradition we use the word grace, grace always brings relief from me. This idea that grace taught my heart to fear just isn't the way that is is not a Lutheran use of the word grace. But you could say that the that when God reveals his wrath against all sin and ungodliness through his law to a person, such that they bring brings them to knowledge of his wrath and fear of his wrath, such that they seek salvation, that is in fact a gracious gift of God. That we might have we might quibble with the language and say this is there is a better way of saying that it is grace that taught my heart to fear. We must say it was grace. It was gracious of God to teach my heart to fear. But I mean, you've got so many syllables to fit into a line, and you can't you can't say it all always. Um, but you know, that it is actually good news that God hasn't left us in our sin, and that He calls us to repentance. That we haven't got what again, and you know, we have the prophet Amos, is the, the 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 dreadful famine of God's word. And when God still seeks us and still calls us to repentance. He's still gracious towards us. Well, it's like with Abraham when he went to sacrifice Isaac. And when he was about to and God stopped him, then God said, um, now I know that you fear God because you were willing to do this. Yeah. Yeah. He and, acknowledged and God as God. Right. And it's like, you know, God is so powerful and he made this promise and he told me to do it. And if I don't listen, you know, it's it's God. I have to listen. And it's that that sort of respect and and whatnot that that they would call fear, I suppose, as as you've been describing it, with the the idea of respect and awe. Yes. And it's, you know, if if <clears throat> I know if um precisely in that in that you know, if if you take that, that particular account, it's it's treating he, Abraham showed that he treated God as God, i.e. feared him, by putting God's word above every other consideration, which is what Jesus calls us to do when he says, you know, you, you, know, you cannot, you know, that, you know, we might, we might be called to abandon even closest human relations if it's a choice between the gospel, choice between Jesus and wife or children or husband or or, or in-laws, or lands, or fields, or anything like that. But then, uh, and and, but that even then, even that, just like the call to repentance comes as a you know we experience it as painful. It is in fact a gracious gift, because the more the more we draw near to Jesus, even if it comes at a great cost, the more we will also be rewarded by the rewards that only Jesus can give. And. <clears throat> The call, therefore, is to worship him. I mean, again, this word worship, remember, is bow down before him, which is an act of acknowledgement of his authority, acknowledgement of his glory, acknowledgement uh, that he is God. <clears throat> but when we worship him who made heaven, earth, sea, and the springs of water, then that also means we have as our God him who is the creator of all things. So that, you know, when you have, you know, I'm going to beat you up, you and whose army? Well, God's army. You know, if he's behind me, if 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 he's the one 
under whose authority I place myself, then that also means that he he is the one whose power and strength and authority work for my good because I'm his. You know, if you, you know, if you take a, if you, if you, if you placed yourself under the authority of the Roman Empire, then the legions of the the Roman legions were then defending you. And if you place, if you bow down before God, then that means that the armies of angels of God, and the victory of that of God is also your victory now. And so it's a call to, ultimately, the gospel is a call to true worship. And he hasn't really got to enunciate the entirety of the gospel when he gets interrupted by another angel saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, or really it's the wrath, is a better translation. The wrath of her sexual immorality. And again, this is this, this uh, chant against, against the fall of Babylon is taken from uh, Isaiah, uh, the prophet Isaiah. Um, and and we hear it we will hear it again uh, in um, this is Isaiah 21 if I remember correctly and we hear it we will hear it again uh, in, in the book of Revelation in the chapters to come now Babylon of course is the is the archetypal enemy of of God and his people and of Zion because the Babylonian armies destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and so Babylon, Babylon is in in when Isaiah writes, uh, is prophesying the fall of Babylon, the actual Babylonian Empire that did this thing to God's people in the first instance, but therefore it then becomes archetypal or kind of proverbial of whichever the evil power is that is oppressing God's people. So already in Peter in his first letter, uh, he's writing his first letter, and he he's writing from Babylon, but he's not actually in Babylon; he's in Rome. So Rome is now the the kind of evil superpower that that is is uh, oppressing God's people, and this is whether whether Revelation is written in the in the sixties uh, or in the nineties, and as I said, you know, when we started, there opinions, different opinions on this. Either way, these are times of persecution that are originating from the emperor himself, as so if Rome has become Babylon, and but also, of course, the Babylon. The, this moniker can can you know can be applied to different earthly powers or spiritual powers at different times. So Rome was you know politically and and and, and uh, militarily oppressive and, and and used force against the church, but of course it did so because it also required false worship. So the two beasts working in tandem in Rome, and the declaration is Babylon is fallen. The enemy, whichever it is, even if, you know, when Isaiah was writing, Babylon hadn't really arisen yet. You know, the Assyrians were still in power when Isaiah was writing, and or before the Babylonian Empire had ri properly risen to power, Isaiah is saying, Babylon is fallen. And while the uh, Rome is slaughtering and slaying Christians, the angel declares, Babylon is fallen. And you could, you know, uh, German Christians could have been singing this in 1933 or even in 1921. And Soviet, you know, Russian and Ukrainian and Belarusian Christians could have been singing Babylon is, is Fallen in 1924. 
even though it would be another 65 years before or 67 years before the, the great beast has fallen. Every enemy, because God said, you know, Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The end is already decided. And the uh, we 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 will need to finish in just we overrun our finish time slightly. So I, I will just uh, bring us um, a finish with we'll finish with this chapter. We are very much mid flow, but for reasons that are obvious. But uh, the it is the 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 great the great uh, sin of Babylon is not the violence, but the idolatry. That the the and we here's the first reference to this um, the this image of drinking the wine of wrath, something again that is is drawn from several prophecies of the Old Testament and which will become uh, later on in this chapter uh, in the harvest you know when it comes to final harvest that imagery gets picked up and 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 not for the only time in in the book of Revelation, but this drinking of the wine and. It's this sort of, um, um, you know, I, I, uh, <clears throat> something that I saw as a student. There were sort of initiation ceremonies of, of various student societies that would involve some somebody who wants to join the, a student club or something. Uh, they would be forced to drink these terrible cocktails of, you know, and if they if they if they drank this thing and didn't die of alcohol poisoning, they were in that kind of thing. You know, this kind of forced, you know, forcing down. Uh, the throats is this this noxious substance, this wine of wrath, and what is is, is her sexual immorality? Is this the the fact that she has led nations and peoples into false worship, into idolatry? That is our that is the true enemy. The angel first angel calls us to worship God alone, and the second angel declares the defeat on the and the destruction and the overthrow of that nation, that power, that uh, uh, hegemon that led the nations away from the true worship of God to the worship of idols. And very unfortunately, that's where we have to stop because we have a third angel and, and various things still happening. Just very quick reference, early so late early Lutherans of uh, interpreters of the Bible, late sixteenth century, early seventeenth century, particularly, uh, have applied uh, saw read verses uh, verses six and seven, particularly the first angel, and said, "Well, that sounds an awful lot like the Reformation." Uh, it's kind of you know, if, if Rome, Rome, and the Bishop of Rome, the papacy has become the Babylon. And then there's this angel that comes and, and, and calls God's people back to true worship. And so uh, if you read sort of uh, early Lutheran commentaries on the book of Revelation, they will say, oh, that, that angel, that's Martin Luther. Now, and which is why on Reformation Sunday, this is the uh, epistle reading, or the first reading, rather, is Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. Is it really? Well, if we have to identify this angel with one 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 thing, the answer I think must be no. But of course, the uh, the 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 proclamation of the gospel happens through human intermediaries, and so we could say that it is. You know, you could say that in the Reformation and in all true preaching of the gospel, where especially when it's preached to bring people back from idolatry or from false worship to true worship, 
is the work of the first angel. So it's not that this is this is Martin Luther, but in the in the Reformation too, the angel also work. And this is not a single event, but it is an ongoing work of God's kingdom. And there we need to finish, uh, with many apologies that we started late and we finished even still managed to finish a little bit late. We'll have to pick up uh, next time with the rest of the chapter. But just before we do, uh, if you have, if anyone has any questions or comments outstanding on this, what we've read so far, I want to give you the opportunity to ask or or comment. But since I hear none, I will then conclude just by saying that this is this is part of the beauty of the Book of Revelation is that just as things seem seem to get you know the, the way it's structures it just as things seem to sound really terrible and awful and it looks like there's no hope always we're given an encouraging chapter in the middle of saying look we're still winning it's explaining why things are why things look bad and then reminding us grounding us again jesus won and in him we are we too have won let's close with prayer father we thank you for the victory that you have won over all the powers of evil in the work, the life and death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, and the authority that you have given to him, which he exercises over all your enemies for the church. And we thank you for our calling and membership in the, into and membership in that church, that you have placed your name and the name of Jesus upon us and that we are his and we are yours. And so we ask that you would keep us faithful, keep the truth of your word always in our hearts and on our lips, that we never be led astray, but come to share eternally in the feast of Christ's victory. Keep your church here and throughout the world and continually call into its membership those who are being saved through the core preaching of repentance and faith. And so may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.